Welcome to the Hobby of a Lifestyle podcast, a show that looks at how our passions impact lives and drive career choices. I'm Andy Gray, a former national and world champion kickboxer. During my shows, I'll be talking with athletes, coaches, fans and more as I delve into their world to find out what inspired them on their journey. Welcome to Hobby of a Lifestyle. Thanks for joining me. Quick question. Who has two Paralympic swim medals, five Paracanoe World Championships and most recently won gold at Tokyo Games? The answer, Charlotte Henshaw, a multi-talented athlete who's come on the podcast today to share her whole story. Morning, Charlotte. Welcome to Hobby of a Lifestyle. Morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, thank you so much. Congratulations on your recent Paralympic success. Thank you very much. Thank you. How how does that feel to be able to call yourself a Paralympic champion? Um, Yeah, it's it's something that I have always dreamt of being able to say um not that I wasn't you know very proud and still I'm very proud of my my silver and bronze in in the pool um but you know that I always was very aware that there was an accolade that I hadn't quite managed to achieve yet so um you know to be able to say now that I am a Paralympic champion and that will be you know that's fact for for the rest of my life will is is a lovely feeling and um yeah just immensely proud to have had the opportunity to do it yeah wow well, it's a, it's amazing i mean the fact that you've just said there you've already got paralympic medals in swimming mm. that is phenomenal i mean let's before we even get to that transition and, and let's go very to the very beginning then yeah. so as a young as a young person where did you grow up and and what were you into so I was born in Mansfield in Nottinghamshire, um, so a Midlands girl. And um, I think I was a very active kid. Um, I was kind of, I did swimming lessons. I did um, rainbows and brownies. And then I went on to guides. Like I was really busy. And I think partly that was because I'm an only child, I think. So um, my parents were very consciously trying to get me into a lot of things so I could make a good group of friends um so that I wasn't kind of on my own a lot um which obviously then meant I ended up doing a lot of hobbies um and also I think because I I was I had my amputation I'm a bilateral leg amputee I had my amputation when I was 15 months old so um my I had a condition when I was born that they still don't know really what it what it is it affects my bones and right the one the one consultant that seemed to have a bit of an understanding or an idea of what I potentially had um unfortunately passed away not long after he'd had that conversation with my parents so it's still a bit of an unknown as to why um I ended up um you know having to have my amputation um but my parents decided that that was the best um possible way for me to be independent and as active as possible um was to be able to walk on prosthetics so I think that as well as me being an a child sort of encouraged them to encourage me yeah, to yeah. to be active and and get involved in things because not only did it help the social development and um, it also was really helpful for me to understand um my prosthetics and kind of get involved in different yeah. things to try and keep me as active as possible so that then I could continue to be active in later yeah, life yeah, so I course. think it was a dual prong kind of thing which meant I ended up being a very very busy child <laughs> I mean yeah. obviously you you being 15 months old you, you've never known anything different but what was it like growing up then as a as a child as a as an amputee 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I I always say that I feel very fortunate that I they they did my amputation at a time where uh, developmentally maybe it was slightly later than I perhaps would have been walking around, but yeah, yeah. not much later. So by the time sort of my amputation had healed and I was ready to have um my first pair of legs made, I was about two I think yeah, so I yeah. wasn't sort of too much later than everyone else toddling around so and as well because like you say I, I hadn't known anything different and yeah. um, I've heard the story from my parents that when I had my, my legs on for the first time they kind of just plonked me in the middle of a room and then put some toys around me right and they were like she'll get up and play with them when when she's ready and I, I did I just kind of got up and toddled across to go and get something I think for, for me you know I, I would if I had to have my amputation I would absolutely have chosen to have it at that yeah. time because I learned everything that I do now the way yeah, of course. that I do them I, I never had to relearn anything yeah, yeah. it was all just kind of figuring it out as I as I went on and I think that's put me in a mostly in a good position as I've got older because everything is natural to me but yeah. there are a few times it throws up a few um problems like for, for example like um now the technology of prosthetics has started to evolve I find it quite hard to evolve with it because I've yeah. been so used to what I've known for so long and so I almost don't want to take that step back into relearning everything yeah, so it's it made that a little bit difficult but for the most part like absolutely it was it, it was a it was a good time for it to yeah, be. Yeah. Um, can, you, can you remember your first sort of memory? Because you're saying two years old, you're not going to remember when you're two. Can you sort of remember your first memory from being a child when you kind of look and go, yeah, my, my legs are, are different to other kids? No, like, I, I don't remember. Apparently I, when I was, when I'd had my amputation, I kind of went like, oh, like my legs are not there. Because right. I, I did have like, I, I had, um, Tib, uh, I was missing t- both tibias, but I had feet that were like club feet. So yeah, yeah. they they looked a little bit like a, a full leg, but they weren't weren't functioning. So yeah, yeah. I would have noticed as a as a child, like a baby, that it was different. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I don't remember the, the earliest thing I remember, and I think the, the, one of the key things to you know how well I manage with my prosthetics now is I was at physio at the hospital pretty much every day. And I remember those sessions a little bit. I think I must've been like two or three. Oh. And I remember vaguely, like, I just thought I was in a playroom and yeah, they yeah. were making me walk up these three little steps and the little, um, you know, like the old, they used to have them in like old fashioned gyms where they got like um, climbing bars up against the wall yeah. and oh, I was yeah. like trying <laughs> to climb up those. And I just thought I was kind of like having a, a whale of a time like playing with this like lady yeah, um, yeah. but actually it was really sort of functional stuff yeah, to yeah. help me and so, so that's probably the earliest thing I, I remember right wow so as I said you've been a really active child it, it hasn't hampered you in, in one little way you're doing your girl guides you're doing all these other, what was was there any particular sport that really was it just swimming that really took you straight away yeah so I always swam from being like four I think and I'd always been to the pool before that like I think because it gave me time out of my prosthetics like it gave me um a bit of a break from them and it meant that 
and I still do now go and swim just to kind of stretch my back out if I've been walking a lot like it's, yeah, it's a yeah. good sort of therapeutic um activity to do anyway so I think I'd always done that uh, my mum and dad had always taken me um when I was a kid and then obviously when kids start to learn to swim about four-ish yeah, usually yeah. Um, I was already in like nursery or maybe even first year of mm. primary school. And so all my friends were starting to go to, to swimming lessons. And again, because I was in a mainstream school and I wanted to do what everyone else yeah. was doing. I kind of wanted to to do that as well. And it was a it was a it was something that I could do yeah, yeah. Um, the same as my friends. So um, I started swimming lessons when I was four and then I, I swam my entire childhood and just you know as everyone else does who swims steadily increases yeah, it yeah. one day and then suddenly something else is moving out the way so you can go to another swimming session yeah. and before you know it that's all you're doing so um I used to play a bit of like uh badminton I was at a local badminton club until I was right. about 14 just one night a week and and then again that kind of had to move out the way for another swimming session yeah, eventually yeah. so um it was always swimming really but it's been part of my life since I can remember so what stage in your life did swim become, like you've already talked about this, kind of becoming the main priority. When did it start becoming something where you thought, you know, I could, I'm pretty good at this. I could potentially go on and do British championships, Europeans, world championships. Um, I think I was probably about, I think maybe eight or nine. And right. I had been swimming at, um, I don't actually know where it kind of came about, but I was swimming at, um, a gala somewhere I don't know where uh and uh, a guy who an Australian guy who um was very involved in para swimming at that time he kind of spotted me and he went and spoke to my mum and he said you know I think your daughter has some real potential like I can see wow. that she is a talented swimmer I'd really like to um work with her a little bit so he ran um, a disability club in in Nottingham, so he would we would drive over there one night a week so that I could go and swim with him, um, and it was him really that kind of sowed the seed of that I had got the potential to, yeah, yeah. to do something well, and then I think I was ten, and they used to do something called the Junior Nationals, which for disability swimming, and um, I don't know if they still do it anymore, but from ten years old you could go and race at like a national championship wow. with loads of other disabled kids. So that was my first kind of like foray into it's more than just club swimming kind of thought then actually then I started to meet people that had been on Paralympic teams before um and then I met um a a girl she was 16 so she probably she still was a girl but she just won a gold medal in Atlanta 96 at the Paralympics and I met I would have been 10 9 or 10 and she let me wear her gold medal and um it was then that I was like oh Paralympics like what's this is this something that I you know and so from that moment being in the Paralympic world was something that I always wanted um were you competing at para para swimming before you had been noticed by the Australian gentleman so I think I was part of a a local disability club like yeah yeah we kind of found somewhere to, to go and I was doing like my badges and stuff with them. And I was also a member of a, an able-bodied swimming club. Yeah. Um, and 
I don't, like I said, I don't remember where his name was Doug. I don't remember where he would have seen me. I don't know if he'd brought one of his swimmers to like a a gala that I was doing for my club. Um, I used to have a little swim in those or a regional championship or something like that. Um, So I probably started competing from being about nine. And then I was like 10, 11 when I was racing him. It's just interesting because I know I spoke with a few Paralympians recently and they've all said that they didn't have a certainly the ones who were born with a disability didn't have a great knowledge when they were younger of para sports until until maybe they got some of them were in their late teens some of them were maybe just coming up to being a teenager but it wasn't i know certainly because we're not too dissimilar in age i don't really remember seeing many disability sport groups at all if any no, maybe that's because i wasn't in that world but i, I just did, don't remember seeing many at all i don't think there was and i think that that's like testament to my parents really because they were the ones that were having to advocate for me at that time so I think they did a lot of door knocking and like my daughter wants to do this like is there a way or can we help to to set up something I think and so I think they were the ones that really it wasn't at an elite level it was more can we get these kids into doing because for me like I was a I was a good swimmer at that point even though I was only swimming with my arms like okay, I wasn't quite as fast as the other people my age, but I wasn't far off. So yeah, yeah. when I went along to a, a, a swimming club, they were happy to accept me because I was I was, I was, was quick enough to be there yeah, anyway. Yeah. Whereas I think for, for some people in certain disabilities, that that wouldn't be an option. So yeah, we had to, there had to be somewhere else to kind of go um, to, to get that provision and, or even just to get in the water, you know, not in just a train, just to kind of, experience and learn um and then I have to say Nottinghamshire County Council at that time had an amazing sort of um sports development unit that were really um keen on disability sport development so once you kind of I think in any sport once you're in the the little world in your local community then doors start to open and so then I got to know the the people at the the disability unit and Notts County Council and then they set up a squad that we used to meet on a Saturday morning so then it became a a regional disability squad and then that then snowballed into we would go away to national championships which you don't you wouldn't know about unless you've got yeah yeah of course um but I compared to what I you know what obviously what the people have said I was about 10 I would say when we started to discover that there was this world of Paralympic sport yeah. that okay it's nowhere you know where we are now compared to then is is yeah. like years away but it was still you know it was still um lottery funded sport it was yeah. people that had been away to sort of um Barcelona Atlanta Sydney then um so I was 13 when the Sydney games happened and I was then competing at national championships yeah. and so I was swimming with the people that were on the British team. So it, it was relatively early for me that I started to understand that there was this world of Paralympic sport that yeah. could be a potential option. I mean, at 13 years old and no doubt at national championships, you're racing against the people who are now, com- you know, competing yeah. at the Olympic- Paralympic Games. Was that, what was that like? Was it a motivator? Was it also, was it demoralising at times? Was it, I don't know, how how was the experience for you? Um I mean, from what I remember, I was just, I was excited. Like I used to love going to, because at that point, like I said, you had junior nationals that you could do from when you were 10 until you were 18. 
And then you could do senior nationals from being 12 and then onwards. So when I was 12, I went to my first uh, senior nationals at Sheffield and I was in the call room with like um, the ones I remember and that I'd heard about was like Sasha Kindred and Nairi Kindred, who were like big superstars in the power swimming world. Yeah. And then my current teammate Jeanette Chippington was still swimming at that time. And she'd right. been to like three games, I think at that point, maybe yeah. four. And so um, I remember seeing these people around poolside and they've got like their British flag hats yeah. and they would wear. And I was like, well, that, that, that's exciting. and, and I don't think I ever found it overwhelming. I think I found it like really inspiring actually. Yeah. And like there was, there was no difference at that point in those competitions between you and the people that had gone to the Paralympics, like you were all racing together. They'd mix you all in. Like there was no, well, the the new ones go here and then yeah, we have course. an elite race. Like everyone's just shoved together. And I, and I really liked that. And those were still some of my favorite competitions right up until I retired. Those national competitions were brilliant. So going on, so you, you know, you've seen you've won national, you've won European titles. What's yeah. it like when you first win that first national championship, the feeling, but then when you go to a European, because I can imagine the jump again is absolutely huge. Yeah. So for me, I I kind of plowed through my early teen years and then when I was 17 I think I was 17 um I was invited onto the like the world-class potential program um as it was then um which was like one step down from the the podium squad and so they were kind of picking the people that were going to be the next generation in maybe like Beijing London and beyond um and I I think I was 17 when I raced for Great Britain for the first time and it was an open meet in in Denmark and I so I must have been coming winning maybe not winning nationals but like getting in the medal position at nationals um sort of from my early teens so once I'd sort of got on the radar of the British program then it snowballed quite quickly and then that's the big step up is going from not being associated with British swimming at all to yeah. then entering this new world of um like drug testing and um you know not being able to skip training because you've got an exam at school like yeah. they'll help you figure out you know that things then become a lot more professional and they have to yeah, so that was the probably the biggest step up when I was about 16 was going from sort of doing it all on our own to suddenly having yes people supporting you but also expectations for not just how you race at a competition but like the way you live your life then starts to revolve around the sport and even more than it did before so that's probably the biggest step up and that was quite scary actually because um I knew then that that potentially would lead into racing at like a a, a Europeans or a Worlds or or a Paralympics and my first major competition was the Paralympic Games in Beijing. I didn't go to anything before that, apart from this open meet um, in Denmark. Just of fire. Yeah, and then it took me a little bit of time because uh, I moved to university when I was 18. And then I made a real step forward when I was at university. And that's when I kind of went from the potential, like, periphery yeah. to being a world competitive, can like, competitor. So... In those like three or four years between 
uh, being 17 and then going to Beijing when I was 21, that was like a real step forward. And, and that was probably the biggest transition, I would say. What's it like then when you get the letter to say you're going to a power Olympic Games have been selected? Well, I can't actually remember being selected for Beijing. I don't remember how we were selected. I remember it really vividly for London and Rio and, and Tokyo, obviously. But I don't remember no, how I knew that I was going to the game. So I'd done the the qualifying time at the trials in the, in the April. So I knew that I was going to be considered um, because I'd done, I'd done the qualifying time. Yeah. Um, but I we must have got a letter or something or a phone call and I just remember I was just so excited because that's all I'd ever wanted to be was a was a Paralympian and so to be able to to go and and you know achieve that dream was was you know beyond what I'd ever um imagined and yeah it was it was a really lovely um an exciting moment for sure getting that first sort of nod for a Paralympic Games and then again that's opening up a whole new world that until you are part of a Paralympic team you have no idea what all the processes that it entails yeah, before yeah. you get on the plane and that was a learning experience as well so you know you're constantly like just taking that next step up to the next yeah, level yeah. and that's that's really exciting so what this, what was it like when you got to Beijing for the, for the Olympic obviously they, they've changed over the years and everywhere will be different I mean you're a seasoned pro now but what is it like when you get your first Paralympic Games and you're there for maybe as you go along with the opening ceremony or the or the ending ceremony depending on how your schedule is uh, working out so I remember really clearly getting my kit for Beijing so we got invited to I think we're in Birmingham actually and we were all in a massive sports hall. And it's the first time I've been to a multi-sport event as well. I was used yeah. to being around swimming. And then all of a sudden you're with all these athletes from all these different sports. And you're all kind of shoved together in this, like we went for a weekend in in Birmingham. And we went and picked up our kit and we had a celebration dinner, um, which was amazing. And then, you know, getting on the flight and you were wearing different kit because obviously I was used to wearing my British swimming kit, but yeah, I'd yeah. never had Paralympic kit. So wearing that look constantly for three weeks was a was a new thing for me. Um, and I we did go to the opening ceremony in Beijing, which I'm really glad of because it's the only one that I've been to still. Right. <laughs> um, so I'm glad I've managed to experience one opening ceremony. Yeah, of course. Um, and then, it, unfortunately, I got it ill when I was in Beijing. So I um, I was ranked world number two going into to wow. Beijing so I was kind of not expecting to win a medal but I knew it was a possibility yeah. and then it was during the opening ceremony actually um I started to feel really um faint and hot and I ended up I was developing a fever yeah. and um I woke up the next morning and one of my legs had like swollen to like twice the size so I couldn't get my prosthetic on and I went to the doctor and he was like you've got an infection in your leg and so I was on antibiotics I was in using a I borrowed a teammate's wheelchair um, and I never use a chair like I'm always on my prosthetics and because I couldn't walk and so I really wasn't well and so I think if it had been any other competition I would probably have withdrawn because I really wasn't in a good place but I and I think you'll a lot of Paralympians will say there's Olympians as well like you you might get on the team and you might you know be on that Paralympic um roster 
that I don't think people class themselves as an Olympian or a Paralympian until they've actually raced at yeah, yeah, the games. Yeah, and so I was like, I've come all the way here. I was like, I, I, I'm not a Paralympian until I've swum in that pool. So I was yeah, like, yeah. I'm going to race, whatever. I was like, let's just see what happens. And we kind of muddled through. Um, and and I came forth in, Be- in Beijing. So wow. I was gutted. Like I, because th- it wasn't, in my in my performance it was slightly an underperformance than I had been yeah. doing but not surprising since I couldn't push yeah, off yeah, my of leg course. and I got a temperature of like 102 so I, in hindsight it was actually a decent performance but at the time I was absolutely devastated so aside from that even that experience it didn't really dull my memory of Beijing like yeah. I have very fond memories of my first games just being part of that that whole environment was incredibly special so um I always try and say that to people now like in if they've had a disappointing yeah. like comp or whatever like it it doesn't have to define your entire experience of that games like you can still have the most amazing memories of something that also brings quite painful memories back yeah, so yeah, of course um yeah I think it just shows how special an Olympics and Paralympics yeah. is I mean sure. was that the driving force coming back then that pushed you for 2012 games yeah, so I had a little bit of time out and I was I was going into my final year of uni. So I I changed coaches. I um for my last year of uni, I just went and trained with the, the club at Sterling rather than training at the elite centre and, and just rediscovered my love for swimming yeah. and training with a you know club swimmers that were teenagers that didn't really care about uh it being super serious and yeah, just yeah. having a good time and I really liked that and um, so I went and trained with them for the last year of my degree and then I came back to my old club and um you know that's when I had to make the decision as to whether I would become a full-time athlete or I'd try and work as well and um the European Championships, I think, I, I graduated in the June and the Europeans were in the October of that year. Right. And so I thought, right, I'll just, I, I won't rush into doing anything else. I'll just swim full time until after Europeans because I was getting lottery funding as well, which, yeah. you know, gave me that option. And then I went to the Europeans and I, I won. And so then I kind of was like, well, I guess I'm a full time athlete now. Yeah, and then yeah. I, you know, that's what I've been ever since. So, yeah, that was really the switch from being a student full time and trying to swim full time. Then I made the decision to just like live off my lot- lottery funding. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it's, um, it's a big decision to make as well, isn't it? And yeah, it's also it's a testament to the character. You said you came back after a disappointing games, not necessarily due to anything that you didn't just do being ill, but you've, you've wanted to then drive it forward. You said you took a bit of time out. Did you take time out? because of the games in particular, the fact that it was just one of those things that you had to mentally and emotionally just get over? Yes. Um, and again, that was my first experience of a post-games yeah, yeah. slump, which now I know is a thing anytime you go to games, whether you win a medal yeah. or not, like that's just what happens. Like you get a bit of a come down after and obviously I'd never experienced that before. So I had a bit of time out and I got myself stuck into my final year of uni um, without having to worry about swimming um and it gave me that time to to just reset and refocus yeah. and like I said I've changed coaches and um there was a lot of stuff going on um and I was really conscious that I wanted to get a good degree so yeah. I and I knew I was gonna have to start my dissertation and all of that so I it 
it kind of fell at a quite a good time actually because yeah. I could concentrate on getting myself set up for my final year um but also give myself the time out of the pool that I needed to then yeah. when I went back I was I was ready to go again um so yeah that was um definitely part of the reason why I needed that break was Didn't- to just when you hear about professional athletes changing coaches, what's that like as a process? Because I often get the the feeling that it, it's it's not always amicable. You do see a lot of people who it's quite amicable, but then also you look at it from an outside point of view. You're saying to me there that you've just come fourth of the Paralympic Games when you weren't well and you're ranked number two in the world. What was the reason behind wanting to change your coach? So it was a bit of a forced situation, actually. So um, my coach ended up, I was training at the uh, at that point that swimming had elite centres in Manchester, Swansea, and Stirling, and I was the one in Stirling. And our coach um, went on long term sick after right. Beijing, and so I wasn't sure if he was going to come back to right. being at the centre. So I I could have carried on training at the centre. I don't actually know. I think eventually at the end, actually they disbanded the center then. And right. then we, people went, so it was kind of a, it wasn't a choice that I made, right. but it was a, it was a, it was a situation that happened and I had to kind of adapt to it. And so, and actually training with the club for that last year was probably the best thing that I could have done because I, I had always trained in a club situation before I went to university yeah, yeah. and that suits me better. I preferred training with, kids that just do it as a hobby yeah, yeah. and it keeps it chilled it keeps it relaxed and that's what I went back to after I graduated like I came back to Nova Centurion who and I was with them until I retired I was with my coach Glenn at Nova from before I went to uni and then I came back and then I was with him until I was 30 um and that is the environment that I work best yeah. in certainly what's for me do you have um, people like Team GB seeing fighting you almost trying to pull you into the elite program or do they look at your talent and go that's working for you this is why you rank so highly in the world this is why you win Europeans we're going to let you kind of go that but the support's there in the background when you need everything else as well yeah so it kind of comes in waves it depends what the ethos of the program is at that particular time so for for British women at that point there was um there was elite centers but I was I was set on moving back home and that was okay because yeah, they were yeah. used to kind of liaising with Nova. And then when you get a change of personnel in, you know, a new performance director, a new head coach or something, they may have a different vision for the, for the next cycle. Yeah. And I think the only time that there was a bit of, and it wasn't a pushback and it wasn't a, a com- it wasn't a, a fight. It was more of a conversation as when they moved to a centralized program in Manchester. So if you were going to want, if you wanted to be trained by the British women coaches, you had to be in Manchester. Right. And I didn't want to move and I didn't want to sell my house. I didn't want to up sticks yeah. and go. And so I had to go to my review with, you know, a thought out reasoning why I didn't want to go to this, to the center. And I was happy with where I was training with Glenn. And you're right. If, if things are working, then you know, as long as you're willing to collaborate in, and I would go up to the center maybe every eight weeks for a couple of days just to yeah. check in and see the support staff. And that was okay. And that's how it worked well for me. And the only time that we ever made changes was when my performance dipped a little bit and I would perhaps, we would travel up as a, 
um, there was three, there was my, my coach, myself and Ollie Hind. We used to train together as a, as a three. Right. And if we needed a bit more input or we thought we needed to look at something with the biomechanists or whatever, yeah. we would go to Manchester a bit more. So it was a collaborative thing and it was always a, you know, you had to give you reasons for why you were going to stay yeah. where you were. And as long as it was working, then that that's that's cool. That's so good that they're flexible as well, because I, I, yeah. I didn't know there would be, especially with it being a funded programme, with you being a professional athlete and representing and I Britain. I didn't know if there would be everybody women can work as a as almost like you can train with a club because there's so many clubs and there are some really good clubs that have got an amazing provision of pool time or, you know, like there are clubs that are, ex- excuse me, exceedingly professional. And I think if you're in the right place, then there's no reason for you to change it. I think if if you need more access to support or you need more access to pool time or you can never train in a 50-meter pool, then there's the conversations yeah, you need yeah, to have. But I think if you've got the setup at, at your home base, I think swimming can work quite well because it's such a it's such a popular sport and yeah, there's yeah. there's pockets of those professional outfits all over the country. Yeah. So it's not it's very different in canoeing. Like there's not that many canoeing clubs. So you tend yeah. to find that when you're on a in a world class program, people train at the elite center and yeah, that's yeah. different sports and how they work. Right. So after you've won a European Championships, and is the next one the World Championships? Yeah, so I I then went to the Worlds in 2010, and I I, I broke the world record, but I came in the morning, and then I I got beaten in the afternoon in the evening. So I I got a silver medal at the Worlds. I never won a world title um, at swimming. I, I only won European. It's still pretty impressive um, to win Europeans and get silver medals at World Championships. So yeah, isn't it? so silver and um, I won European golds and. And then world and Paralympic silvers was like my next kind of. Um, is that is that one of those things that you you talked about earlier? It was one of those accolades that had escaped you. Does it? Because yeah. we haven't even talked about the transition to another sport yet. You've just you've sort of mentioned them. We'll get there. Is that something that's ever bothered you that you'd never got the the Paralympic gold in your original sport, or was it just the case of I just want a Paralympic gold? It doesn't matter what sport it's in. Um, I don't know. It was. So in London, I I got silver. It was my first Paralympic medal yeah. in, in London. And I was 0.03 seconds off winning. So wow. minuscule. Like yeah, you can't yeah. even stay like on the like video. Fingernail. Yeah, it's like it's minis- yeah. tiny. Um, and it with the benefit of time, I'm more frustrated about not winning that race than I was at the time because there were so many things that had got so I actually didn't qualify for the London games like I had an absolute nightmare in the qualification process and turned out I'd got overtraining syndrome and so there was right. absolutely no way that I was ever going to qualify um the the state that I was in at that particular point um but I was taken on a wild card to the to the games to London so wow five months earlier I wasn't even on the team and so to then win a silver and be so close to winning like that was that was the achievement for me like I was so relieved to just have gotten to race in London and then you know to win my first Paralympic medal at home games was was incredible and so on the day I wasn't overly disappointed I was just relieved to have finally got a Paralympic medal and to be there yeah um, but then with time I'm like 
that was my opportunity and I I messed it up like it was my error that cost me that 0.03 seconds um so yes there's a little bit of that um but I think I think the I I like to believe that everything happens for a reason and I was like maybe if I'd have won in London I wouldn't have gone on to Rio I wouldn't have um I had an amazing year in 2015 in swimming. Like I didn't win the world championships, came second again, but I had been swimming so well and I'd been breaking my own personal records and things like for that entire season. And I probably learned more about myself as an athlete in that year than I did have done through any of my, my career. And so if I'd have given up in 2012, like I wouldn't have experienced that. And I think I, I had untapped ability from 2012 to 2016 that I, managed to unlock and had I won in London I might not have unlocked it of course and also I wouldn't have had the opportunity to then you know potentially move sports and then go on to another games which I never thought I would so I think it definitely that my journey has happened the way it's happened for a reason reason, yeah what was it like winning the silver medal at a home games oh unbelievable like I just that whole Four weeks was just the probably the happiest four weeks of my entire life. Like it was so unbelievably special. Yeah. I, I think we always were aware that it was going to be an amazing thing for us because we were the ones that everything was tailored around. We got the best pick of the yeah. apartments in the in the village. Like we got the best kit. We got to do all these cool things before and after because it was home games and we knew that we would get good support. I don't think for the Paralympics, we realised we'd get quite as much as we did because I think we'd all thought that after the Olympics, people wouldn't really care about the Paralympics. And then, you know, they go to the pool on the first morning and it's packed to the rafters. And we all thought it was just going to be our parents there with a little flag and just a few school friends. And then we walked in and we were like, oh God, people have actually come Uh, to watch, which is unreal. Ticketing for 2012 was just, it was a nightmare. You couldn't even get tickets because they had just went that fast, wasn't it? It was incredible. It was good as a nation. Yeah, I think that is what benefited the Paralympics actually in London because I think a lot of people had tried to get tickets to the Olympics and failed. And so they were like, well, we want to be part of it. We want to see the venues. We want to do this, that, and the other. So we'll try and get tickets for the Paralympics, which I think at the start was slightly easier to get. But then as momentum picked up, it was hard to get tickets for then the Paralympic Games, which was unheard of before, you know, like to have a full paying crowd. Like in in Beijing, they'd shipped in like school kids and people that were just walking by and like, do you want to come and watch some sport? Because there was no one there. Well, there was people there, but it wasn't busy. Whereas then to have a full crowd that had actually paid for their tickets was, was beyond what we'd had before. I know a few few of the guys have said that they, they, and and maybe just us being biased as a nation, but they said that the, the home games in 2012 in Great Britain were real, almost a massive turning point for Paralympics. I mean, there's obviously been other progressions from previous games, but the, the emphasis that was on those Paralympic games and then the the spotlight that it, that it was allowed, it was afforded, and rightly so, just kind of transcended the games. It was a real game changer, absolutely. I mean, the I think not only the way that the, the public embraced the Paralympics I think made a huge difference Mm. um and 
I was speaking to some friends from different countries that were at the games uh, in London and I asked them, I was like, was it as amazing for you guys as it was for us? Because I was like, we might be looking at it through rose-tinted glasses going, oh, the home games, it was the best games ever, blah, blah, blah. But then you speak to people from other nations and they're like, London was the turning point. London was the, you know, set the bar for what a Paralympic should be. And um, absolutely right. I think by the time those 10 days ended, people were recognising Paralympic athletes in the street they were recognizing yeah. their achievements um alongside those of the olympic athletes and i don't think that and i think a lot of that has to go down to channel four like the coverage yeah, that yeah. was given to london was so far beyond what we'd had in beijing yeah. and before that it brought it into people's homes and because it for us it was there was no time difference like you could watch it at any point yeah of at, course you know any day and it was easy to pop down to London if you've got some tickets or even just be around the park and things like that. So it absolutely changed the course of Paralympic sport for sure. Um, There's still more to be done. Like we've not hit the the peak yet. And I think maybe Rio didn't set us back, but again, it's a different challenge, especially when, you know, you've got, um, the, the time difference people is yeah. not easily accessible I think and in those interim years what are we doing to keep Paralympic sport at yeah. the forefront like it it can't just come every four years and everyone go oh this is brilliant like yeah, we need that enthusiasm the whole cycle so there's absolutely you know more to be done but yes it was definitely set in motion by the London Games because if I'm right if I'm right remember didn't the Lo- didn't Lokog and the Paralympic Committee work hand in hand to to organise the, the Games in 2012? Do you know if that continued in the 2016 and the 2020? I have no idea, although <laughs> I do know, obviously, from, from watching Rising Phoenix on Netflix, I didn't realise how closely um, or how close we were to not actually having a Paralympics in 2016, because the uh, organising committee had run out of money and they were so far behind schedule. Yeah, in yeah Rio, it was crazy, wasn't and it? They had basically thrown all the money at getting the Olympics ready and then they were like, oh, wait, we've got the Paralympics to yeah. do. Not sure if we can do it, lads. Like, And the IPC kind of swooped in and were like, this can't be cancelled at yeah. last minute. Like, As athletes are in the country, like they've travelled, like we need to get this going. And yeah. thankfully, you know, they saved it. And I think that's one of the things that I'm a there's many things that I'm sad about for for Tokyo but I wish that they'd have been able to put on the games that I think that they would have had it not had COVID and it would have run as normal because I I genuinely think that Tokyo would have been a a step on because they we went out to Japan in 2019 and they were so enthusiastic about um the the Paralympics particularly and I think it could have been a real cultural shift in their country for having the Paralympics there. Yeah. And I, I don't know if the effect was quite as big because it was kind of dampened down by by COVID and yeah. we couldn't have the crowds in. But I definitely think, you know, and I think Melbourne, am I right? Or it, that have got, or is it Brisbane? I can't remember where they're going in 2032. I think it might be Brisbane. Um, and they're the first... Um, 
I believe the first people that have made a joint bid for the Olympics and the Paralympics, like it was quite a big thing that yeah, like yeah. they are going to be together and it's, you know, the branding is the Olympics and Paralympics. Yeah. And, and I, so we're, we're continuing to make strides for sure. Um, but yeah, there's definitely, um, those, those partnerships are important and yeah, the more yeah. we can put on them, the better. I had this conversation with someone, it's only been a couple of weeks ago and I, and so I don't really feel I've ever asked a question, but do you feel that as a Paralympian, you would just like the games to be at the same time almost? I mean, I know from an organising point of view, that must be an, a logistic nightmare to have Paralympians and Olympians all together in the same village, all trying to compete because I'm sure it takes so much time. And I, I imagine the breaks are needed, but there must be some way where the, all, the games can just become almost not separated, just be an Olympic Games or a, whatever you want to call it, but just be one. I don't know. Yeah. Or, or do you like the fact that the the Paralympics get their own limelight? I, 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 it's just, I don't know. I'm very much, a, it's a difficult one because I, I do see that, you know, people say, well, why don't you just combine them? And, you know, that does seem like a, a logical way, but I, there's so many things that that throws up, you know, you mentioned logistically, it would be an absolute nightmare yeah. to get a program of inevitably people would lose out because they'd have to cut something. And also I think that the para athletes would potentially get overshadowed by the Olympic program. Yeah. Um, I, I, you see it happen at the Commonwealth games, like, and it, you have a, a snapshot of para sport at the commie games, which is brilliant. And I, I like the fact that it's combined, but the coverage is always substandard yeah. for the para, uh, the para uh, events. Like, and there's only a certain amount of people that can go because it, that's all that fits in the program. Yeah. So I think, I think that it's important that the Paralympics has its own identity. I think yeah. because it can do so much more than, just sport and yeah. I think it deserves that kind of platform to make that cultural change but yeah. there are things that can be done to make sure that it's not an afterthought like it it needs to be given as much um you know weight and value as an Olympic Games yeah I agree and this is this is why we were having the conversation it was like almost well why didn't the Paralympic Games on first don't make it mm. second because you said about 2012 almost worrying that it was almost an afterthought, but then yeah. I suppose will the same happen if it's if it's first? Will people maybe hold off for Olympic tickets? It's it's it's, yeah, it's a it's, it's a fifty fifty, isn't it? Really, it's you're on the fence. I think where some of the change will come more readily is um like the United States have just done it. Like they have combined their U.S. Olympic and U.S. Paralympic association so yeah. they're now just team usa and they their social media their social media covers both they don't yeah, have yeah. Separate social media so what the audience was for team usa athletics now unless you actively unfollow them because they're now posting paralympic content that is now being broadcast out on the same Instagram account so they covered the US athletics trials on that account and they also covered the US Paralympic trials yeah. on that account now yes okay there were separate events and on TV the coverage was different but some of the content that was going out and you, social media is so big they are 
people are getting Paralympic content that's just as well produced on their phone as the Olympic content. Yeah, and yeah. then people start to learn that it is professional sport. Yeah, yeah. It is competitive. These athletes do train full time. And I think that, that because they're not having to, to seek it out, to learn that, they're getting it because they're a fan of, yeah, of course. sport. And then they're getting Olympic feed, Paralympic feed, and it's all coming through as one thing. And they can start to understand that there is no difference apart from the fact that some of those are maybe missing a limb or some of them yeah. use a wheelchair. Like the, the drive and the and the will to compete is exactly the same. Yeah. And I think that's where to start with some of that change should come is like yeah. a bit more of a collaborative effort nationally between the Olympics and Paralympic associations of each country yeah. will then hopefully start to drive the change Um in other ways. Yeah. I mean, I think it'd be really cool to watch your games and say, I don't know, just take the hundred meters because it always gets, you know, such fantastic yeah. media attention because it's so fast. But having a, the, having the Olympic one and the Paralympic one maybe is just integrated so that that runs alongside. So not having all the sports together, I think it would be great to see a couple of events where they do bring in the Paralympics at the, at the games. Well, I know I'm probably jumping ahead a little bit, but since I moved to canoeing, that's something that I've really enjoyed. Like our world championships is the same event like yeah. we're combined so it works on an individual sport level I think yeah. because there's not as many athletes and maybe in a sport like canoeing which is not as populated as something like athletics perhaps yeah. it's a bit easier um but we have our world championships over the same five days and we're mixed in and around the olympic events yeah. and the olympic program so it creates a really not everybody who's involved in canoeing will stand and watch the para canoe races. Yeah, yeah. I know that, but they're much more likely to watch a Paralympic event if they're tuned in on YouTube and they yeah. go, Oh, I want to watch that race. And I want to watch that race, but this race in between, I'll just leave it on. Yeah, yeah. And I, So I think in an individual sporting context, I think it could potentially work. Yeah. It does in canoeing. Um, as long as you're giving the you know the same amount of respect to both, yeah, then course. I think in in terms of like an individual sport in world championships or whatever, there's no reason yeah. why that can't happen. <laughs> We've kind of done two podcasts within one, yeah. We we put the I know, put yeah, the... no. <laughs> <laughs> We've just rewrote the whole Olympic and Paralympic program. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so 2016, you know, I'm yeah. going to go back now. 2016 was your final Olympic Paralympic Games for swimming. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about that and then why it was the last one as well yeah so Rio was um, it was for me it was um, it was a bit of a strange game like I, I loved it but yeah. it was um, my event I was a 100 breaststroke swimmer and my event had moved on quite a lot between London and, and Rio um, I was the only person who was on the podium in London that was on the podium again in 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 yeah. Rio the the entire field pretty much had changed there was only a couple of us that were still around from right. the London final so I had found it quite challenging to to move with it and I'd had that like I said earlier I'd had an amazing year in 2015 and I had knocked like three seconds off my personal best time which kind of shifted me up to the new sort of medal standards and yeah, yeah. um, and so then moving into to Rio, I knew that I was swimming well enough to get on the podium. I knew I probably couldn't win because it'd been somebody new coming 
out of Australia that was swimming faster than I'd ever gone. Um, So I knew it was going to be quite hard to win. Uh, um, So I just wanted to get on the podium because I knew that that was probably going to be my last games as a swimmer. I I thought I was going to retire completely from sport at that point. And so that last year into Rio, I I almost fell out of love with swimming a little bit. I wasn't happy in terms of um, where I was at. Like, I think I was, I was struggling to motivate myself to, to go training. I I knew that my time was running out in the pool and I only really motivated myself because I knew I was going to get to go to another Paralympic game. And so that was a good carrot to dangle, but had that not been there, I think I'd have called it a day at that point. And so when I came back from Rio, I I had some time out and then I actually got taken off funding anyway. So I would have had to have carried on swimming if I wanted to without lottery funding, which is quite a challenge when you've got bills to pay and things. So um, I knew that swimming probably wasn't the long-term future. And so then I got in touch with UK Sport and they've got a programme called Talent Transfer, where you can kind of say to them that you're interested in trying other sports and you're interested in a potential move, but could you help me out with, you know, where my disability would fit, who's actually looking for new athletes because not everyone wants anyone new to take on. And so I had a meeting with them and we went through, you know, the potential sports that I could classify in. And, you know, I told them what I was interested in and what sort of environment I was looking to go into and so I tried a few different sports and para canoe was one of them. And um, I was fortunate enough to get given some sort of um, transitional funding from UK sports. So they right. said, you know, you can have three, four months of funding while you explore your new sports. Like, cause if there's a potential that you'll go on to be a medalist in that sport, yeah. like obviously then that funding is not wasted. Like we've transitioned, funded you through that transition. Yeah. So um, I had, I think I had about four or five months to make my decision before I would then get funded for an interim period in my new sport to prove myself or say, I've tried it. I don't like any yeah, of them. Yeah. Thank you very much. I'm done. And um, so that five months was a real just exploring uh, different programs, different, different sports. So I really enjoyed that point of yeah. time because I was like, I was doing sport and I was doing something different, but it was for fun, really. It was to see whether anything clicked with me. And then thankfully one of them did. And I just found myself, you know, really enjoying being in a kayak and they were keen to keep hold of me. Like, um, had you ever kayak before? Never. I've never, <laughs> well, I'll say, I'm going to lie. I, I kayaked, um, in 2015, we did some cross training with swimming right. in the preseason and some of the Manchester, uh, performance squad came to Nottingham to to do some cross training they were doing sort of ballet and all this sort of stuff and one of the mornings they went to um home pierpont which is where the British team is based and did some canoeing and they said oh because you're local come along and get in a but it wasn't anything like the kayaks that I race now it was a a big fat plastic one that you know it's really hard to move yeah, and it's yeah. very stable so that was the only sort of dabble that I'd had with canoeing um, and then I co- came along and they were like right we're going to put you in a racing boat and I soon realized that that is very different from paddling a big fat plastic kayak because they're very wobbly 
and they're very long and very tippy. So I'd not done it properly. Not done yeah, it properly. yeah. I mean, you must be the most hated person in the kayak world now, are you? No, I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> Tra- transitioning from one sport, being phenomenal at swimming, then coming over to kayak and then taking over the well, world. Well, <laughs> it's 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 it, honestly. It, there was an article that came out after our amazing success in in Tokyo as a squad, and we are very much a squad that has a big percentage of people that are coming from a different sport. So, right. myself, Laura, Sugar, and Emma Wiggs, who were the three gold medalists from Rio, uh, Tokyo, have all been to Paralympics in other sports. Um, uh, Laura came from athletics, and Emma came from sitting volleyball. Um, Dave Phillipson, who was on the team, he did three games uh, with wheelchair tennis. Um, Jeanette Chippington, obviously, is a legend in the uh, Paralympic swimming world, and Tokyo was her seventh Paralympic. Wow. So, like, they're canoeing because it's a new Paralympic sport from 2016. I think there was a lot of talent that they unearthed that had had experience in other sports. Yeah. And, you know, it's a real testament to them that they can take an athlete that has got those qualities of being an athlete and then teaching them the skill of canoeing and sort of combining those together to make a really good paracanoeist. Yeah. Um, so they seem to be pretty good at that. <laughs> Is it, yeah, phenomenal. Do you, yeah. Think the swimming, do you think the swimming and maybe some of the technique from swimming has really benefited your kayaking? Yeah, so for me the biggest there's two big things that I think has helped me from swimming and I don't think there's any um secret I mean you look across the parasport world and so many you know current gold medalists and medalists from certainly from Tokyo started in swimming like Sarah Story, Lauren Stedman, Claire Cashmore, Jodie Kundi, myself like the swimming gives you an incredible aerobic base and um work ethic because it's it's a slog swimming you spend four hours a day staring at a black line at the bottom of a pool just plowing up and down for hours on end putting your body through the most ridiculous distances and that creates this engine that you never lose as long as you put petrol around it every now and again like you don't lose that massive aerobic base that you've built and because like I said, I started swimming when I was four. Yeah. So when I started canoeing, I was 30. I trained to varying degrees since I was four. I've yeah. always swum. And that all of that work for years and years and years then, you know, helps you out when you reach your 30s or whatever. Yeah. And you've still got this incredible base of work. And um, so I think that helps. And then I also think understanding the water yeah. is like second nature to me i i understand movement through water i'm not scared around the water i trust myself around it and i think certainly when i was learning to to kayak having that that i didn't have any fear because if i fell in yes yeah. it's cold and yes there might be fish and there's a swan and all god knows what else but i can save myself and i'm yeah. not frightened of being under the water and i also the movement is not too dissimilar from front crawl like it's a one you know it's like a, yeah. it's a bilateral stroke and my paddle is basically the extension of my hands like yeah. my hand used to do that in swimming and so to me 
the the effective movement of the blade through the water like I never had to learn that I just knew where to put the blade to get the best possible yeah, purchase yeah. on the water and that's hard to teach I think if you don't yeah. understand that it's just natural to me so I think that helped me pick it up very quickly <laughs> I mean the, you've went from swimming to becoming a world champion in kayak yeah like, in, what, what in was that like yeah, yeah I mean so, what transition and what a what a trajectory in the sport it's phenomenal it was it was it was amazing it was far quicker than I'd expected you know I that first year that I moved across to canoeing I started in the January I started properly in the May uh, sorry the March and then by the July I was racing at the Europeans and I, I got silver at Europeans and I'd literally been in a kayak for six months and I didn't really know what I was doing I was just winging it I was like what I'll just go as fast as I can from A to B and hope I don't fall in and we'll see what happens. Like, <laughs> What are people who have done this for years thinking when they see you come along who's never kayaked before and all of a sudden you're taking all their medals? I do remember one of the, the Irish, there's an Irish paddler called Paddy and he uh, spoke to me after my first race and I just remember him saying, he was like, that was a hell of a debut. I was like, thanks. I was like, I, I had a great time. And, yeah, you know, yeah. I I just loved it. And, I, like I said, I didn't know the world. I didn't know really how a competition worked, but I just kind of put all the things that I learned from years of swimming into yeah, yeah. practice. And it's brilliant. Tried to remember what I'd been taught by my coach in those. I just kind of went with it. And then, you know, and then the next year was about, you know, really doing the foundation work, yeah, yeah. which then came good in the summer. And so by summer 2018, I was world champion. I mean, is there anybody in the GB squad who's kind of going, I've been on this squad for, for years. Because <laughs> in my head, there has to be somebody who is competitive, who's in that squad. And then all of a sudden, they're not the queen of the sport anymore. They're not the king of the sport, whatever it is. I know if well, it was me, I'd be thinking, You're joking. Think, oh my goodness. I think that's a real testament actually to the, to the ethos that British canoeing, certainly in Paris canoe we create because it is such a competitive environment because only technically only one person can be selected for a Paralympic games in each classification. Now there was two of us in mind because there's a double up rule and you can, if you're there for one, you can do something like it's all kind of convoluted, but as a general rule, the first past the post gets selected for the games. So we've got an immensely competitive squad. Like if we were allowed free reign at the Paralympics, we'd have won gold and silver in five or six events, like, but which we then went on to do at the world championships just after the, after the games. But because there's only certain amount of people allowed, it kind of stifles our medal performance a little bit at the Paralympics, which is annoying, but we have that depth there. So you can kind of pick a couple of people from our squad and they would go on to win a Paralympic medal. Right. Um, and some of them don't get a chance to go. But when I first came into the squad, like the 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 event that I won in in Tokyo, Emma Wiggs um, had won in Rio, and she was you know she was like the queen of the kayak for yeah, sure. Yeah. But she knew that I was coming in to kind of race her, and she, yeah. to her credit, you know, was really welcoming to me like she was happy that the squad was being expanded and we were becoming a stronger force just yeah, in yeah. general um and obviously it must have been hard for her to kind of then when I did start to beat her yeah. like to know that there was a real competitor there but yeah, yeah. 
that's what we want you don't I wouldn't want an easy ride and I would certainly never no, no, ride I agree, with yeah. you know what I mean like even though at the moment the the momentum has shifted in my favor for yeah, now yeah. but I don't know like it's not a given and that's the exciting yeah. thing about sport and I know that I'm gonna get a blooming good race whenever I line up yeah, next yeah, to her yeah. and there was another girl as well Nikki who was the second in the kayak she was a world silver medalist and I came in pretty quickly and started to kind of beat her and again she could have been a bit of an idiot about that but she wasn't she yeah, was yeah. like you know it you fair play like you come in and yeah, yeah. you win and that's, that's you know that, that sport you know you have to respect what people can do and I think that's what we have really well at, at canoeing is okay people it is hard individually if you perhaps get knocked off your perch yeah, yeah. or you don't get a chance to go to a Paralympics and then you know that if you were there yeah, yeah. you could have been in the, on that podium that's tough but as a collective it just means that we are a strong force and we yeah. know that we've got that amazing ability to to clean the board when we're allowed to go and yeah, hit out yeah. as a squad no it's it's good as you say it's, it's good that the mentality is right and they want competition because I suppose if you want to be the best you've got to beat the best absolutely and if you want an easy ride I don't know why you'd be involved in sport like if that's not something that you thrive on and if that yeah, yeah. and if you want if you want to win by you know like eight seconds why do you do the sport like that's not no. to me that's not exciting you want you want competition you want yeah, to yeah. push you all the way to being better and um that's you know hopefully what we can can and it also makes it exciting to watch and certainly as Paralympic sport we want to demonstrate that it's it's exciting and it's yeah. you know it's not just turn up and here's your medal like you've got yeah, to work yeah. oh, <laughs> one million percent yeah my sport's so diluted now it's unbelievable everyone's got a world medal now it's it's yeah. crazy it is it's just yeah so many different governing bodies because of power and ego with it not being a funded program right there's, there's yeah no one that, there's no one there to really yeah the police it, I suppose, and say, well, look, we yeah. need one or two governing bodies, which, yeah, you know, and yeah, it's one of those ones. But I agree. I agree. I, I do. I just do think, you know, maybe think I'm going to go to a Paralympic Games and then within about 15 months, someone's come on the programme and took my space. I, and you're right, it should make you up your game. But I can, I, I just imagine some people would be, would resent that a little bit. Um, yeah, and maybe, maybe like deep down, like that. Yeah, like, yeah their feeling but it never really seems to be presented yeah, that way and I think yeah. that's you know real credit to how we've been kind of yeah. prepared for you know it's such a double-edged sword isn't it having an amazingly competitive squad is brilliant when we're all allowed to be there yeah, when yeah, we're competing course. against each other it's hard because you want your teammates to do well but that internal rivalry is still always going to be there because yeah. you want to be the best. Of course. You want to win. And of course yeah. you do. You wouldn't be in sport if you didn't. So it really, it, it it's a difficult line to tread, but I think we managed to do it really well, which is no, great. It's fantastic. And what was it like when you won your Paralympic gold medal, that first Paralympic? <laughs> and a totally different sport as well. So to win it, what, what was that feeling? What was the moment like? Uh, relief was yeah. the biggest. Because I... I felt the weight of expectation for sure. I think from myself mainly um, because I'd gone in to the games. I haven't been beaten in a kayak race since 2018, early 2018. So from winning the world championships in 2018, I was unbeaten in 2019 season. I didn't get to race in 2020. And then in 2021 I'd done a few competitions at um at home and 
obviously Wigsy was my main competition. Yeah, so yeah. we would train race at home together and I'd managed to come out on top of all of those ones. Now, yes, the games was a different race and you can never say, yeah, oh, of course. you know, I've been unbeaten, I'm not going to do it again. But I felt like it was very much um, mine to lose in a way yeah, because yeah. I knew I was capable. Um, and I think... I felt that expectation from myself of, and also knowing in the back of my mind that this was the one that had eluded me. Like yeah, I, yeah. I won everything else that I've wanted to win. This was the one that I've still yet not managed to yeah, win. Yeah. So I think I felt that for sure. So when I raced, I, I, I didn't race actually particularly well in Tokyo. I, could have raced so much better and I did at the world championships a week later I yeah. was so much more free and paddling a lot less tense um but on the day in Tokyo it was about getting the job done and I I, I did that to the best of my ability and yeah. thankfully it was enough to stay in front and um, and yeah it was just an immense relief and then excitement and then a whole lot of pain um <laughs> but yeah it was it was all sorts of emotions and yeah it was a very special morning for sure oh, i mean I've, I've i ask every person that comes on who's either competing in the paralympic games or the olympic games would you rather be an olympic champion or a world well a paralympic champion or a world champion um oh it's that's hard because definitely in para canoe wow yeah I think definitely in para canoe because there's a limit on how many people can go to the Paralympics because of it, it's only one boat per nation. Yeah. So the field is slightly smaller in the Paralympics. So the world championships, you've, you've beaten more people to, to win it. Yeah. But the, the gravitas and the, the, what a Paralympic gold medal means, I think, I think I would choose the Paralympics for sure. Well, you're the first person who's actually had to debate it with yourself. I, I, I love that. Yeah, Everyone I else mean, just picks the games all the time. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's the pinnacle of our sport. Yeah. It's the pinnacle of sport. But I think because of the way that Paracanoe do their selection for games, or actually canoeing in general, yeah. because they limit the amount of people that can go, It the, the field just actually, to be fair, like our field was as full as it would be at a, at a world championships, maybe a couple of people less, but the people in the final, there was nobody that was missing, yeah. you know, standing out that was missing from our world championship final. So actually it was the same field. So yeah, it, it just, that's the only thing that in canoe and it's like, yeah. well, you, it, there's much more competitors at a world championship. Yeah. So that's like, oh, I've beaten all these people, but yeah, obviously yeah. the Paralympics is like the the big one for the sure. Elite. Yeah. So is there another Paralympic cycle in you? Do you intend to go to Paris in 24? Yes. Yes. So I think had COVID not been a thing and we would have um, done the games in 2020, I might not have been so definite about wanting to carry on to Paris I think it probably would have been a little bit more of a decision yeah I of course think, um the fact that we've done a five-year cycle and now that leaves us with a three-year cycle yeah it seems a lot more achievable than a, another a four-year cycle because yeah, now course. we're less than three years to the games yeah, yeah. like we're already less than that so by the time I've had a bit of a, a break and I'm back into training it'll only be like two and a half years which yeah, yeah. seems so manageable compared to like a five-year one which we've yeah. just done so 
yeah, I'd, I'd like to think that I could carry on to the same standard yeah. uh, in Paris. Um, and then beyond that, who knows? Like in canoeing, you could quite easily, I could have another couple of games yeah, in yeah. me. I I think the challenge for me would be hopefully remaining injury-free. Obviously, yeah, as you yeah. get older, that's a little bit more of a challenge. And also keeping my mind in engaged, I think, because yeah. I've done Paralympic sport for such a long time. I've been through the rigmarole of a four-year cycle a lot and yeah. it's it's hard mentally and it's a big commitment and you, know, you have to think about what you want to do the rest of your life are you willing to put it on hold as such for another three four years yeah. and um that's a you know that's a decision you have to make at the start of that four-year cycle because yeah, once you're in it it yeah there's no you know out. you're in it and it's it, it, not many people kind of give up halfway through a cycle unless okay. you have to yeah yeah um so yeah Paris is on the agenda for sure and then beyond that I, I'm not sure yet <laughs> your names must be one of the top five names for British Paralympic sports yeah we'll, we'll take Charlotte she's good she's, she's done four or five of them now that's it we'll take her <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'd still love to be involved in some way you know after I hang up my paddle I think that's where I would like to to stay I yeah. it's all I've ever known and it's what I'm very passionate about and certainly continuing that movement of the of the Paralympic movement is really important to me yeah. so and I'd love to experience the games not compete and I'd love to kind yeah. of just be like a fan and yeah, go yeah. And watch or even work at one do you know what I mean yeah. and see that other side of it and stay and experience it um when you're not got this performance hanging over yeah. you I would just love that because I'm a like a sports geek so I would love to kind of stay involved as much as I possibly can. Oh, yeah. No, I bet you that'd be fantastic. What would your one piece of advice be then to anybody who wants to maybe follow in your footsteps or just, just in life in general, what would your advice be to somebody? I think you have to do what makes you happy. And that might, certainly in sport, it could potentially be doing things slightly differently from other people. You have to do what works for you. and so. I think when you're first starting out, it's, are you enjoying it for one? If you're not enjoying it, then you're not in the right yeah, place. And you have to keep that same mindset if you carry on to doing it yeah. at an elite level. If you're not enjoying it, what's the point? Like you, you're wasting your time and energy on something that's making you unhappy. Yeah. So I think if that's the case, then make the changes, trust yourself to know that that's not working for you and have the conversations with the right people to to try and find a way to make it work for you. Like I do it all the time. Like yeah. I learned so much from the lockdown, actually training yeah. at home for four months. I thought I was going to hate it. And I actually really enjoyed it because it was different. And I learned so much more about how I um, function well as an athlete and some things that I had in place before actually made me really unhappy so yeah. we had the conversation and we tried to change them so when we came back from the lockdown the approach to my training was completely different because it it made me happier and I performed yeah. better for it so I think that's key is making sure that it works for you and um are you happy that's the no, most that's fantastic well Charlotte thank you so much for your time this morning thank, thank you for coming on Hobby of a Lifestyle absolutely love learning about your journey Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Hobby of a Lifestyle. Stay safe, stay well, and we'll see you next time.